If it was announced on TV that a meteor was hurtling towards Earth and was headed towards downtown Philadelphia, the citizens would say, no worries, Marindale will find some way to divert the meteor. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Governor Ed Rendell. Governor Rendell is a lawyer, author, and politician who, from 1992 until 2000, served as the mayor of Philadelphia. Shortly after that, in 2001, he was elected the 45th governor of Pennsylvania and would go on to serve two terms. In this episode, we'll hear how he got his start in public service as Philadelphia district attorney in the early 80s and how representing everyday Philadelphians inspired him to devote his career to Philly. It was the first time for them that they had a champion. And it was the first time for me that I was anybody's champion. It sort of convinced me that I wanted to stay in public service. We'll talk about his time as mayor when he inherited a city on the brink of bankruptcy and how he managed to balance the budget, achieve a surplus for five years, and set in motion the renaissance that created the city we know today. I said, listen, you just heard me agree that we need more money for libraries. We need more money for the rec centers. We need more money for the streets department. But we don't have any money, so we've got to cut things. But if we do it right, we'll someday be able to replenish those cuts and maybe even add more money. And we'll talk about how in the 80s, Governor Rendell almost quit politics altogether after his first two attempts at public office. But I lost both elections. And I thought, well, that's probably it. All this and more right now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. Just a heads up, there is a curse word in this episode. All right, I'm not even going to try to hide my excitement about this one. If you would have told me this time last year when I was a corporate software developer that episode 30 of my still-fledgling podcast idea would feature Ed Rendell, I probably would have told you that that was crazier than the Eagles winning the Super Bowl without Carson Wentz. But here we are. So this episode features a conversation with the man who arguably laid the groundwork for the growing and exciting city we have today. At the age of 32, he was elected the youngest district attorney in American history and went on to serve two terms. He was popular and the people loved his no BS attitude and fiery temperament. But after being DA when he ran in the primaries for mayor and governor in 87 and 88, he lost badly and wasn't sure what to do next. Showing his true Philly grit, he ran for mayor again in 1991, and to his surprise, he won. But he would be taking over a city that felt without a hope, still reeling from the move bombing in 85, losing jobs and residents by the day, and quite literally on the brink of bankruptcy. He rolled up his sleeves, and he and his team went to work with an everybody pitches in mantra. Immediately, Governor Rendell started cleaning up the city figuratively and literally. There's even a famous picture of him personally scrubbing a first-floor public toilet at City Hall. With buy-in from City Council and most of Philly's citizens, Governor Rendell's administration managed to tighten the belt and in only eight months completely balanced the city's budget. This was so improbable, so impossible, that the New York Times called it the most stunning turnaround in recent urban history. Five years of budget surplus would follow, and by the time his term ended in 2000, Philly was on its way back to prosperity, and Governor Rendell was on his way to Harrisburg. 
But before all this, way before Ed Rendell cemented himself as a key figure in Philly history, even before he first came to Philadelphia to study at Penn, he was actually born and raised in New York City. There, his early years revolved around his father, with whom he had an extremely loving relationship that revolved around their passion for sports. But on one seemingly normal day when the governor was 15, that all changed. He was one of these people who never went to the doctor, you know, thought that he was in good shape, but he did everything wrong. He smoked the four or five packs a day. He uh, drank about a pint of liquor a day, but was very functional at all times because he ran a very difficult business that depended on him, his own efforts and energy. He was a converter in the textile industry. Uh, he also had three eggs a day in the morning. So did everything. <laughs> wrong but you know i had this idea that he was invincible and one day i had breakfast with him and he walked out to get a cab and i when the cab pulled over he dropped dead right on the just like that just like that and how did that change your outlook well it was terrible because my mom was a good woman but she was never close to us like my dad was my brother and i everything that i am today my love for sports uh, my love for politics all those things came from my dad. So it was a real shock when he died. And, you know, I, I think of him today often. But it had one silver line. It made me very resilient. It made me used to doing things for myself. Again, it wasn't that my mom was a bad mother. She wasn't, but she was in shock that I, I'm not sure she ever totally recovered from by losing her husband so quickly. Uh, so she wasn't of much help to my brother and I. So we learned to do for ourselves. And that resiliency has helped me in my career, no question about it. So in your high school senior yearbook, it was quoted that the editor said, Eddie has a good chance of success in politics. Why did they know that? Well, my junior year, I was um, student government president. And also, I knew a lot about politics. Like, I could tell you who the 100 senators were. Oh, wow. All 100. Actually, there weren't 100 back then. There were 96, I think, or 98. And I was always interested in politics and interested in student government. And I uh, always talked about elections, the real elections, as well as our student elections. In fact, JFK went to Riverdale as a fifth and sixth grader. So in the yearbook, there was a picture of JFK as a fifth grader. It said, typical fifth grader. It went on to say that they thought I had a chance to be the second president Riverdale was responsible for. Wow, that's incredible. So you wound up coming to Philadelphia then to study at Penn. Right. Why did you choose Penn? Why did you come to Philly? Well, my brother went to Princeton, and I applied to Princeton as well, and I didn't get in. And I applied to Penn and Wesleyan, Connecticut Wesleyan. I got into both schools, but Wesleyan reminded me of the private school that we went to, Riverdale which is, was in a bucolic setting in a beautiful part of the Bronx. And I wanted something different. I wanted to go to an urban school, and Penn was a big, sprawling urban school, much more attached to the city than the current Penn campuses. Were you a good student there? No, I screwed around, and I was a mediocre student. When I applied to Penn Law, which I also didn't get into, the dean was a fellow by the name of Bill Shane. Bill Shane was the dean, and in those days they had interviews. And Bill Shane said, son, we have um, like 80, 115 students in our class. We take 15 from Penn. 
we had 222 applications from Penn and seniors. There's good news and bad news. I said, well, tell me the good news first. He said, out of the 222 students, you had the second highest SATs. I said, oh, that's great, then I'm in. He said, no, out of the 222 students, you had the 221st highest cumulative average. <laughs> so I, I got turned down. He told me then that I should look elsewhere. Wow. About 40 years later, I appointed Bill Shane to be a commissioner for the Public Utility Commission. There were no hard feelings there, I guess. No hard feelings. He, he turned me down, and he should have turned me down. <laughs> yeah. So you wound up then attending Villanova Law, and you chose to stay in the Philly area. Yeah, because my dad had died, I didn't have to. If my dad was still alive, I might have gone back to New York. But I didn't feel much of an attachment to New York. My brother was gone. My mom was there. But as I said, we were never really close to our mom. So I felt no connection to New York. I enjoyed Philadelphia when I was at Penn mightily. I developed a great deal of friends from Penn who stayed in the Philadelphia area, going to Wharton MBA. Then I started dating my wife, Midge. I decided I want to stay in Philadelphia. And I got into Villanova. It was comfortable. I uh, stayed in Philly. I lived downtown. I took the train out to Villanova. And usually that early morning train was me and a lot of people who were going out to be maids or housekeepers for rich mainline. I saw a lot of mainline wives in their bathrobes in their cars <laughs> coming to pick up the maids. Yeah, that's great. So after graduating Villanova Law, you eventually went to work in the district attorney's office. Now, you established a reputation of being fiery and having a bit of a temper, correct? Well, let me tell you a story before that because it shows you have fate plays a role in our lives. It's pretty hard to get a job in the law. And I had gotten a job uh, working at a, a bar as a busboy, essentially. And a fellow in our class, Art Bellis, was the son of a councilman, Isidore Bellis. And Art Bellis had gotten a job as an intern in the DA's office, unpaid. And he decided to go, he got engaged and he decided to go to Europe for the summer. So he saw me in the hall and told me the story and said, would you like to work in the DA's office? Doesn't pay anything, but you'll get good experience. So I said, yes. I met our inspector. I got along well with our inspector in the DA's office. I got an offer for a paid job the next summer, a dollar a quarter an hour. And uh, my summer job caused me to get a job offer for a full-time job as an assistant DA. Had Art Bellis not decided to go to Europe, I would never have any connection with the DA's office. I wouldn't have ever run for DA. I wouldn't have run for mayor. I wouldn't have run for governor. His whole career was because he went to Europe. Wow, that's incredible. So did you enjoy the work then after getting that job in the DA's office? Yeah, very much so. I liked the criminal law. It was pretty exciting. We had a wonderful professor at Villanova by the name of Donald Gianella. And within four weeks, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I wasn't sure when I went to law school. And I knew I wanted to practice criminal law. I knew I wanted to work for the DA. And my classmates used to say to me, how do you do it, putting poor people in jail all the time? I said, you guys don't understand. The victims are our clients, and the victims are every bit as poor, if not poorer, than the defendants. And these victims have never had anybody speak for them in their entire life. And we're their champions. For the time they're in the court system, we're their champion. We represent them. We tell their story. And I told my friends of the cases where, I remember once I gave a 
closing argument in a case where a policeman shot an African-American boy and I was prosecuting the policeman. And I made my closing speech and the judge took a recess because he was going to charge the jury next. And I walked to the back of the courtroom and the mother and the family was in the back and they were in tears. And they grabbed me and thanked me from the bottom of their hearts for what a good job I'd done. It turned out the jury found the guy not guilty, but you know, it was the first time for them that they had a champion. And it was the first time for me that I was anybody's champion. And it felt awfully good. And it sort of convinced me that I wanted to stay in public service. Yeah. So then you would become the youngest DA in history, I think I read. Now, I think I read that you were 33 years old at that time. 32 when I got elected. Right. So at that point, you're 32 years old and you say to yourself, I want to run to be the DA. People must have told you you were crazy because you were so young. Well, yeah, they did. And, and also because I was running against the incumbent Democrat, a man by the name of Emmett Fitzpatrick, who was supported by Frank Rizzo and the Democratic machine. And the Democratic machine was thought to be invincible. And I actually thought they were invincible. The reason I ran is because Fitzpatrick had screwed up the office. I left the office when Spectre lost after six years of my serving. I left the office because I had bad vibes about Fitzpatrick, and he proved to be bad. He didn't understand the public role of the DA. He ran a plea bargain mill. And I was so angry that no big-name Democrat, no judge or anything, was going to take him on. Everyone was scared of Frank Rizzo. So I said to my wife, I'm going to run. I'm probably going to lose, but I just something I want to do. Maybe I'll make a name for myself. And that you did. It turned out that... All I had to do was convince people there was an election, that someone was challenging Fitzpatrick. I could have been a double axe murderer, and there was never any attention paid to me. It was all on Fitzpatrick. And the newspapers were out to get him, and I got 69% of the vote, basically as a totally negative vote. But it was shocking to me that the night before the election, I wrote my concession speech because I wanted to have a good concession speech. I went around, as I do every election since, and I went to the different polling places. And I went to a polling place, and um, we had some poll watchers there. And I said to the poll watchers, how are we doing? And they said, terrible. He said, all these single women, or single women with children, come down from the projects, and they, they take the sheet that the committeeman hands them, and the committeeman sheet didn't give them the dignity of adding their names. It just told them what numbers to pull the levers of. And of course, the, the, all of the sheets had Fitzpatrick's number, not mine. So I said to my watcher, did we have any votes? And she said, well, about an hour ago, a priest and a nun came in. They wouldn't take the card from the committeeman, but they both looked Irish. <laughs> of course, I was running against Fitzpatrick. The amazing thing is, when the polls closed, we started getting flash returns from the divisions where we had watchers. And then within 10 minutes of returns, I knew I had won. And our watcher there called in and said, I had won that polling place where those welfare moms came down and took the card and nodded their head and then voted for who they wanted. I won that polling place like 81 to 35. Wow. So it was quite an election day. How did you feel when you realized that you had won? I was elated. Elated, because I never really thought in my heart that I would win. Wow. You know, I kept pushing because 
I said, I'm devoted to this and I'm gonna do it right. But I thought I was gonna lose. Yeah, wow. So you served two terms, eight years as district attorney. And then shortly after that, you ran in two primary elections, so. Right, but the good news, let's start with the good news. <laughs> I got reelected as DA with 81% of the vote. Yeah. In my first election, I had gotten elected in the general election with about 59% of the vote. And that created a pattern that I followed both as mayor and as governor. When I ran for re-election, I got a higher percentage of the vote than I did when I was first elected, which meant people thought I was doing a good job. And that happened in every election I ran for since. Now, before I left the, the DA's office in 86, I lost the gubernatorial primary to Bob Casey Sr. in 86. And then I came home and I was persuaded to immediately jump into the Democratic mayoral primary in 87 against Wilson Good, who had had the tragedy with the move houses and the, the houses catching fire and the whole city block going down and kids being caught and, and trapped and killed in the fire. But I lost both elections. And I thought, well, that's probably it. You thought you were done. And the newspapers sort of thought I was done, but there was still a spark in me that wanted to try one more time. And when I ran in 87 against Wilson Good, I didn't make the move thing a big part of my campaign because that sort of spoke for itself. Yeah. I tried to point out to the people that the city was spiraling towards bankruptcy and that I had a plan to solve it. But things hadn't gone bad yet, so people didn't believe it. Well, as the years after I lost in 88, 89, 90, it became pretty clear that what I had predicted would happen was happening. So I was undecided about trying again. I wanted to try again. I wanted one more shot because it was always my dream to get into politics and government. And I had a successful eight years as DA. But I didn't want to put my family through it. it it's very tough, particularly on kids, to lose an election. We borrowed money to pay for the campaign and put us in debt. So I couldn't decide what to do. And one day, my wife was out of town, and Jesse, my son, was about nine years old. And I came back, and I stopped at the bottom of the hill to get a cheesesteak. And I put in my order, and then I stepped back, and I saw this older woman in a trench coat. She looked like she was about 75, and she had no teeth. And she looked at me, and she said, you're in Dell, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, are you going to run for mayor? Again, I think she said. And I said, I don't know, what do you think? And I stood there for a second. And she stroked her chin for a minute or two. And then she turned to me and said, she said, you have to. She said, this city is so fucked up, we need a smart Jewish lawyer to turn it around. <laughs> and then I knew if that toothless older lady, if she knew that we needed someone really smart and competent to turn things around, I had a chance. And I won the five candidate primary with 50% of the vote. I got 21% of the African-American vote, even though when I ran against Wilson Good in the primary of 87, I had gotten 2% of African-American vote. So you, you got elected mayor in 1991. Can you describe the Philadelphia that you were taking over? It was bad. We had the largest deficit in terms of percentage of revenue of any city in history in the United States. $250 million deficit in a $2.4 billion budget. So about a 12% deficit, 12% of our revenue. Worse than that, 
Jobs were leaving the city at 3,000 a month, fleeing the city. People were leaving the city. People who could afford to left the city and everyone had thrown in the towel. There was hardly anybody out there. A few people like Ron Rubin in the Center City District were still trying to turn things around. But most people had given up. The city had lost hope, was dispirited, and people were just waiting for their chance to get out. And so were businesses. And so I knew that we had a mission to do. I knew, first of all, we had to get the city out of bankruptcy. And I knew that that was going to mean cutting things, reducing expenditures, eliminating waste, doing things in a smarter, better, more efficient, less costly way. And I knew there'd be a lot of pain along the way, but I also wanted to make sure that people knew while there's pain being meted out, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. So I knew I had to do some symbolic things that sent a message out to the people. So, for example, City Hall was a, a pit. It was filthy, dirty, a lot of light bulbs were out and never changed. It was just depressing. And the citizens would come to City Hall and say, this place stinks, it smells, it's awful. And they would say to themselves, if the city can't keep its own house in order, how are they going to keep the city in order? So I decided that we'd have a citizen cleanup of City Hall. The fourth Saturday I was in office, we'd publicize the cleanup. I got Cardinal Bevelacqua to come and we all gathered outside at eight o'clock and he blessed the cleanup effort. And we had 3,500 citizens who had signed up to come and help out. And we had them picking up trash from behind radiators. We had them mopping bathrooms. We had them painting. We had them doing all sorts of things. And it was an effort where citizens worked from nine till six at night. And it was unbelievable. Uh, I took the hardest task of all, which is cleaning the first floor bathroom where all the homeless would come in and use. I got down on my hands and knees and I was scrubbing the toilet. That picture was taken by someone in our media and it went nationwide. And it was a symbol. Here's the mayor on his hands and knees taking the roughest assignment of the entire building to clean up. And you know, if the mayor can do that, you know, can he turn things around? And I was overwhelmed by the love for the city that those 3,500 people had. Later on, after we cleaned up the bathroom, I was digging in back of one of the radiators on the first floor. I was digging next to a woman, and I asked her where she was from, and she said, Altoona. And I said, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? She said, well, I live in Altoona, and my husband and my two children came down with me because I grew up in Philadelphia, and I moved out to Altoona when I was in my early 20s. But I always loved Philadelphia. I grew up in South Philly, and I remember walking to school and smelling the baked goods that came from all the different bakeries in South Philadelphia. And I remembered what a beautiful, wonderful place it was to live, and I wanted to do my bit to help it come back. And I knew then that, that there was so much residual goodwill towards the city and love for the city that we had a chance. And then I did another symbolic thing the summer before I became mayor, our swimming pools were only open for four weeks, and about 10 of them were closed the entire summer because they were broken and we had no money to replace them. So we had no money because I had to cut the parks and recreation budget. So I went to the private sector and tried to raise money for a program that we call Pull for the Pools. And thanks to the Phillies, 
we got a pitcher for the Phillies by the name of Terry Mulholland, who promised to give $2,000 for every game he won that year. And he won 14 games, and the Phillies agreed to match it. So that was $56,000 from the Phillies and Terry Mulholland. We raised about $480,000, and that was enough for us to keep the, every pool open from instead of four weeks for 10 weeks. And we were able to fix up seven or eight out of the 10 pools that were broken. And to designate the effort and to congratulate the private sector for coming to our aid and citizens were volunteering to do some of the cleanup work, I dedicated the biggest pool that had been brought back to life, the Kelly Pool. We had kids from the neighborhood there and we all jumped in together and I was in a bathing suit and jumped in. And there was this picture of me jumping in the pool and then there was this picture of me in the pool with little five-year-old kids hanging all over me. And that picture was worth thousands of words. It was, a no, it was like a message to the neighborhoods that, yeah, it's tough and we're gonna have to tighten our belt, but in the meantime, we're gonna find ways right. to make things better. That's what's, I think that both of those stories epitomizes the approach that you took. So, you know, what's often talked about, about the fact that just what, 18 months after you took office? We balanced the budget. You balanced the budget, right? And then what, five years of surplus? Five years of surplus. So when I left office, as I promised, I promised that if we, as a city, we were willing to bear up under the pain of these cuts, that things would turn around and not only would I be able to replenish the cuts, but we would actually be able to give those services more money than they did when we came in. And we did. Uh, I'll tell you one other story from the beginning. About the third week that I was mayor, HYY invited me to come and participate in a little town meeting at a long table and they had about 16 or 18 citizens. And each of the citizens represented some advocacy group, friends of the park, friends of the library, et cetera. The moderator went to all of the citizens first before I could speak. And each of the citizens complained about the cuts. And then it was my turn. I knew I had to make a terrific little speech to answer what they had said. And I said, you know, Mr. Smith, he's right. He says the library needs more money. We do. Our library hours are too short. We don't have enough modern books. We don't have any computers. We've got to change that, Mr. Smith. You're right. And Mrs. Jones, she's right about our rec centers. Our rec centers are deplorable. The pools are closed. The gyms are closed. Things are broken. We've got to repair our rec centers, and we've got to add more personnel. And Mr. Rogers, he's complaining about the streets department and the Trash pickup isn't as good as it used to be. Well, Mr. Rogers, you're right. We've got to do better, but we can't right now because we're using less personnel, but we're going to find ways to do it smarter. So, for example, instead of the trash trucks getting full and having to travel two or three miles into a dump to dump their trash to go out and have an empty truck so they could pick up more trash, we're going to computerize our routes so that the trash truck goes to the routes that are closest to the dump first so they can get more space and we can pick up a third more trash with the same amount of people. And by the time I was finished, I agreed with every person who spoke. I said, listen, you just heard me agree that we need more money for libraries. We need more money for the rec centers. We need more money for the streets department. But we don't have any money. There just isn't any money. And folks, I can't manufacture money. I'd like to get up tomorrow morning and comb my hair in a pompadour, 
but I can't do that. And I can't manufacture money. So we've got to cut things. But if we do it right, and if we bear with it and hang in there and accept the cuts in the short run, we'll someday be able to replenish those cuts and maybe even add more money to, to meet some of our increasing needs. Yeah. Did you believe that you would be able to achieve what you wound up achieving? Or was there any doubt in your mind? I had no doubt that we could achieve what I said we could achieve, but I had no idea we could do it as quickly as we did. Yeah, We found so much waste, so much low-hanging fruit, that we were able to balance the budget in 18 months. I thought it would take us maybe four years to do. When you found out that the budget was balanced, oh, was how a, did you feel? It was a great day, great day. And um, it, it was amazing. But there was no hanging fruit. I'll give you one example. I get a call my fourth week in office from Tom Knox, who was my uh, volunteer. He served for $1, head of the Office of Management and Productivity, which I created. And he says, listen, boss, I'm here at a building on North Broad Street. And it's where the Department of Welfare is. And we have a lease with this building. And if neither side gives notice before January 31st, the lease automatically renews for a year and it bumps up 11%. I said, 11%? My God, what are we paying? I said, we're paying $33 a square foot. At that time, One Liberty was the swankiest building, office building in Philadelphia. And the rent for One Liberty was $20 a square foot. We were paying for a Class C office building. $33 a square foot. So he said, what should we do? He said, tell him we're moving. He said, where will we go? I said, I don't care where we go. I don't care if I have to put up a tent and have you guys in the city hall courtyard. We're moving. We're not going to pay $33 in rent for a Class C office building when there's a glut of office, empty office right, space. Right, So he called me back the next day and said, good news. He said, I told him we were moving. We renegotiated the lease for $7 a square foot. We renegotiated and gave them five years. So we extended the lease and in return got a massive reduction. First year, we were able to save $18 million on reducing our costs in leasing. People always ask me which I enjoyed more, being mayor or governor. I said mayor was more fun, but governor had more resources to attack the systemic problems that we were facing. So like for mayor, I wanted to help our education system, but the only thing I could do, we passed a liquor by the drink tax, which raised an additional 35 million a year. And I was able to persuade David Hornbeck, our superintendent, to impose full day kindergarten for Philadelphia schools, which helped achievement enormously. But as governor, I gave, over the course of time, I raised the education funding by about $4 billion a year for the 501 school districts for Philadelphia, that meant $600 million a year more on an annual basis than we were making before I became governor. So you have the ability to do stuff like that. But it's not nearly as much fun because as governor, you're in Harrisburg, you're not the first line of defense, you're the last line of defense. You come in when all else fails. As mayor, if water main breaks, what's the mayor gonna do about it? And I accepted those challenges. And I wanted to do things, and we were so successful. Again, not so much because of me, but because of the men and women that I got to work for us. We were so successful. I always used to say in my last year, if it was announced on TV that a meteor was hurtling towards Earth, 
and it would destroy a three-mile swath of property. And I was headed towards downtown Philadelphia. The citizens would say, no worries. Mirandell will find some way to divert them a year. He'll fix it. <laughs> so he'll fix it. <laughs> so mayor was more fun. But again, you had more resources as governor. The difference between governor and mayor is the partisanship, the Republican-Democrat partisanship, was much worse in Harrisburg than it was in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, we had 14 Democratic council members and three Republican. And the Republican council members sometimes were easier to get along with and get their votes than some of the Democrats were. Yeah. There was no ideological split as there was in Harrisburg. Uh, I think we overcame that in Harrisburg and, and we did well. And I think I had a successful eight years as governor. When I left office two days later, Harrisburg Patriot, which is the newspaper of record for the state, they did an editorial and they examined my 10 most important campaign promises when I ran the first time in 2002. And they came to the conclusion that in every one of the 10, we made substantial progress. Now, we didn't do everything that we promised 100%, but we moved the ball down towards the goal in each and every one of them. And it concludes with the words, uh, so in the end, he was a rare politician. He meant what he said, and he did what he said. And in the end, that's all you can ask of our elected officials. Wow. When you read that. I was very proud. Not only proud of myself, but proud of the people who work with you. Because when you head a large organization, you know that you're not doing it alone. I mean, think of what David Cohn did for the city when he was mayor. David Cohn was like a second mayor. People used to say he's the, he's the co-mayor. And people would ask me, does that bother you when you read it in the press? I said, hell no. I'm the guy who hired David Cohn. So I get the credit for hiring him. And there are so many good people. And one of the jobs you have as mayor or governor is to imbue the people who work for you, including civil service personnel who you can't fire and you can't hire, to imbue them with a sense of mission. And I think that was one of the things that I did very well. So you were famous for when you took office in, uh, as the mayor of Philadelphia in 92 for just having this amazing sense of optimism for the city. Looking around at the city today, Philadelphia's in a very different place. Is this the Philadelphia that you envisioned we could have? In some ways, yes. Um, my successors, starting with Mayor Street, then Mayor Nutter, and now Mayor Kenny, have all been true to the mission of making Philadelphia a wonderful destination spot. Because by making it a wonderful destination spot, we also made it desirable for people to live in. Not just come and visit as tourists, but to live here. And when I took the oath of office in 92, there were about 57,000 people living downtown. Today, there are over 168,000 people. We're second largest downtown in America, second behind only Manhattan. We just passed Chicago. And um, it's given so much vitality to the city. It's created so many jobs downtown. It's created opportunities. It's made the city, I mean, would you have ever thought the day I took office that New York Times would do an article, the 72 cities that you must visit. And there were only three American cities in the 72. And Philadelphia was one of the three and was the highest ranked. They ranked them cities from one to 72. We were seventh, seventh most important city to visit in the entire world. New York wasn't in the group. Washington wasn't in the group. Boston wasn't in the group. Chicago wasn't in the group, but we were. Incredible progress. And 
I owe it to the council people and the, my successor mayors for taking that momentum and keeping it going. I also owe it to the business community and to the advocacy groups and community groups because they've kept their shoulder to the wheel and have kept pushing and pushing and pushing, knowing that our job's not done. So that's a, a great satisfaction for me. The only thing I would have changed at all is I would have continued to try to rev up the economy with the type of jobs that people who were 40 or 50 years age and never went to college, maybe even were high school dropouts, could fill if they had a good work ethic and make a family sustaining wage of 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars. Jobs like longshoremen, jobs like truck drivers. And it's one of the reasons that I invested so much money first as mayor and then as governor in the port of Philadelphia. And I'm happy to say Governor Wolf has continued to invest money in the Philadelphia port because that produces those great longshoremen jobs. Some longshoremen make a hundred grand a year. Trucker jobs, 60, 70, $80,000 a year. Janitorial jobs make decent, solid money down there. So that's the one area where I wish we had done more. I sort of ran out of time and where we're, I think Philadelphia has come a long way, but for all the great things about Philadelphia, the best restaurant city, the best arts and cultural city, the best tourist city to visit, the best city for African-American tourists, the best city for LGBT tourists, all those firsts are marred by the fact that of the 25 biggest cities, we have the highest percentage of people living under the poverty rate. That has to change. What would you say is a common misconception about you? I think people on the inside know, but people on the outside sometimes think that I'm all about, you know, making speeches and, you know, being a charismatic leader, driving the process, but that I don't do much substantive work. When I was mayor and governor, I read everything and I made every decision and I made it knowledgeably because I did work so hard. I did know the issues. Now, David Cohn would frame the issues for me, make it easier for me to decide. And then once I decided, David would implement as well as anybody I've ever seen anywhere in any office, implement things and carry things out. So I decided we wanted to have a, the mayor's productivity initiative. We had private sector people work with our city uh, cabinet secretaries and commissioners, and they produced a lot of good ideas for saving money, and we broke them down by department. So in the streets department, there were 11 initiatives to save money. And David Cohn handled the initiative compliance part of it. Those departments had to come in on a biweekly basis and report on how they'd done on each of the 11 initiatives. And if they hadn't made progress on each of the 11, they'd have held to pay with David. So David was the best implementer I've ever seen anywhere. And he held him in check. And he deserves a lot of credit. Donna Cooper, who came up with a lot of our policy initiatives for education and the environment, was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I could go on and on and yeah. on and talk about the brilliant people who work with me. Yeah, yeah. Finally, if you could get one message to every single Philadelphian, be it a tweet, a you know, plane in the sky, an email, letter, whatever, one message that every Philadelphian could ponder, what would you say? Don't change. Grow to understand what we have and try to understand the challenges we still have to undertake. We are a terrific city, a great city, in great part because of the resiliency of the people. Because I said that people had given up on the city, 
They had by 1992, but it took very little spark from me to make people believe again because they wanted to believe because they loved the city. And this love that Philadelphians have for the city, I mean, we can criticize ourselves all the time we want, but don't let any outsider criticize us. That belief that this is a great city and we're something special, never lose that belief, but always keep an eye on changes that will make us better. And accept change when that change is calculated to improve things. And know that we have to take care of our short-run problems, but we also have to look at our long-run problems as well. It's great looking back because there are lessons that we learned from the things we did back in the past that are applicable to the future. And although I don't have any intention of running for office again, I do intend to keep being a major voice for change in the city. Check out the show notes or head to podphillywho.com forward slash ed for a link to the New York Times article from 1993 describing Governor Rendell's incredible progress in reviving Philly. It's a fascinating window into the perspective that people had of Philly at the time, and it's pretty special reading through it knowing the 25 years of revitalization that followed. If you like the show, share it with a friend, and of course, make sure you're subscribed. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating too. You can also follow along on Twitter at PodPhillyWho and on Instagram at PhillyWho. Philly Who is a Q9 production with editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. Special thanks to Fran Dunphy, Melissa Piccoli, and Trey Miller, and of course, to Governor Ed Rendell. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Thank you so much. And see you next week.